Well, good morning, New City Church, and thanks for joining us this Sunday. A couple weeks ago, Christine and I, for the first time, watched the Top Gun movies. Uh, we were going to watch the second one. We realized we hadn't watched the first one, so we watched both of them, you know, one day and another one a few days later. And if you've ever seen the movies, uh, it's Top Guns, Tom Cruise, his call sign, or his nickname is Maverick, and uh, he's one of those guys where, like, he's not the one that's in charge, but he does. He's really good at what he does, so he gets away with everything. And I remember after the second one, like, looking up, you know, what actually is realistic and what's not, and in the second movie, he's train, training these cadets, these fighter pilots to fly this really hard mission and then he essentially gets fired because he's like insubordinate and so he steals a fighter jet and proves to everybody that this mission actually could happen and then he also like parachutes out of it the jet crashes it's like tens of millions of dollars and in the movie they're like well I guess we'll have you fly the mission because you're so good. And I remember reading it online. It was like, no, in real life, he would have been thrown in jail for the rest of his life. That was like a high felony. Like, you can't steal government fighter jets. And, but because he's so good at what he does, even though he's not in charge, he seems to be the one that gets away with everything, kind of what he says goes. It reminds me of maybe even like the really good professional athletes can get away with things that the average ones can't. And so, for example, uh, like this past year, Kevin Durant, one of the best players in the NBA, signed a four-year contract extension. And then he decided in the first year of his contract that he wanted to be traded, and he also said he told them who he wanted to be traded to. So he's not the general manager or the president or anything, but because he's so good, he kind of dictates, hey, I know I signed this four-year contract, but send me to this team with these players. And so you begin to ask, like, who's actually in charge of this organization? Is it the players or is it the owners and the presidents and the general managers? In, In name, you have certain people in charge, but in actions, someone else seems to be running the show. And today, as we continue our study through a few of the books, through the chapters in the book, of Psalms, we're looking at this question, and that is, who is in charge? Who's in charge? Now, I know we're in church, and so the answer is Jesus, right? Uh, but, but here, I don't mean like intellectually, like who's supposed to be in charge, but when you think about your life, like who runs your life? Is it, is it God? Is it, is it you? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your boss? Is it your hobby? Like what runs and motivates your life? Who is actually in charge of your life? That's the question we're looking at this morning. And so if you... Um, have a Bible, if you can go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you, and you can read along uh, there with us. Uh, last week, we looked at Psalm 23, which is uh, the most well-known passage of all of Scripture. Uh, this week, we are looking at Psalm 2, which is the most quoted passage in the New Testament of any of the Old Testament psalms or passages in general. It is Psalm chapter 2. Two. Now, uh, some quick background. In the book of Psalms, there's a few different categories that the various Psalms fall into. Uh, today's is what is known as a royal Psalm. So it's about the Israelite or the Davidic kings of Israel and the future hope of redemption through David's lineage. Now, this particular Psalm was likely used when, in celebrations when new kings were coronated uh, or after Israel was no longer uh, their own sovereign nation, it began to be shift in its usage. And we'll talk about that in a second. But but Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us, is what the surrounding rulers are saying. So, so what's happening here, the context for Psalm chapter 2 is that in the time of King David, Israel was strong. And so you have King David, then you have his son, King Solomon. Uh, under those two kings, Israel was the biggest geographically that it ever was. It was the strongest, the wealthiest. It had various vassal kings and nations under their rule. There were s- several smaller non-Israelite nations that were uh, kind of submitting to them. And in here, in this Psalm, David is talking about how these other various nations 
nations have a desire to revolt against David and Israel and rule themselves and do what they want to do. Now, uh, it's also helpful to note a little history behind this psalm. Uh, Israel's first king, his name was King Saul. Uh, Their second king, his name was King David. Uh, They were both anointed before they became king by a prophet named Samuel. So uh, Israel was in the promised land in the ancient Israel lands for a while. The book of Judges talks about this before they established their own kings. When they have their first kings, you have the prophet Samuel anoints King uh, Saul. And then later on, he anoints King David. Uh, and 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 the kings of Israel... They're they're anointed to be set apart, to rule Israel, and to embody covenant faithfulness to God. And so when things happened in the nation or in the kingdom that were unfaithful, when the people would go their own way, it was the kings who were held responsible. Now, uh, it's just something that's helpful for us to know as we read today and just as we read the New Testament in particular. Uh, in Hebrew, you have a word named Meshua, or in English, we say Messiah. Now, this word Meshua or Messiah, it literally means anointed one. That's what it literally means. And in the Old Testament, is primarily written in Hebrew. Um, the New Testament is primarily written in Greek. And the Greek word for anointed one is Christ. So Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. Uh, Christ means the anointed one in Greek. And so what this means means is that when you read the Gospels and you read Jesus Christ, that is not his first and his last name, okay? So Jesus was not the son of like Mary and Joseph Christ. Now, that can be confusing if you're new to the Bible, particularly because how we in, in English, you know, have first and last names right after each other. But Christ was not his last name. It was his designation. It was saying Jesus, the anointed one. Or if it helps you remember when you read the Bible, you could put the article the in between. So you could say Jesus, the Christ. It's saying Jesus, the anointed one. So that's what Christ and Messiah means. Now for Psalm 2, what he's saying is that there is these various surrounding kingdoms and nations who want to rebel against who God has anointed or who God has put on the throne. They want to rule themselves and they do not want to be under Yahweh's rule. Now, this same idea is that of course, picked up in the New Testament. So in the New Testament book of Acts, it's all about the early church and how the gospel is spreading after Jesus' resurrection and his his ascension back into heaven. People are starting to follow Jesus. And in Acts 4, you read the story of Peter and John. Peter and John were two of the uh, Jesus' closest disciples. They're out telling people about Jesus, the gospel, and then they get arrested. Um, They are put on trial before some of the religious Jewish leaders, and they're essentially commanded to stop talking about this Jesus guy or things are not going to go well for you. Pretty much say, stop doing this or things are not going to go well. And then they get released from their trial. Uh, John and Peter go back to some fellow Christians and report what happens. And then they say this, chapter 4, verse 23. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father David, your servant, Psalm chapter 2, quotation here, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers assemble, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed one. Verse 27, for in fact, in this city, they're talking about Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They're talking about Jesus' uh, crucifixion and how they arrested him and killed him. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Verse 29, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all 
boldness. So, so what's happening here is that for them, for these early Jesus followers, Jesus is the anointed one from the line of David through whom all, must people, all people must follow to live under with peace and comfort. And what they're saying here is just like these uh, ancient kings in the uh, ancient Israel times, that these modern people in the first century Rome, they also don't want to follow Jesus. They want to lead themselves and do what they want to do. And so what Psalms 2 is showing us, which what we all know is true, for ourselves is this, is that we all want to be king or queen, right? We all want to be rulers. We all want to be in charge. We are all little baby Simba on pride rock, right? We just can't wait to be king, right? We want to do what we want and we don't want anyone to stand in our way. Now, I do just want to point this out. Um, Just because we want something, it doesn't mean it's actually good for us or we should actually pursue it or that we even need it or that it's actually right for us to do, right? You can probably think of times where this is the case, right? Maybe there was a relationship you wanted that turned out to be a really bad thing or a job or a substance or an addiction to food or whatever it is, something that you wanted, but you should not have that it was not good for you to have. Now, or maybe you want something and yet at this point in your life, you're just not equipped to handle it or wise enough to handle it if you were to actually get it. And I think one of the biggest reasons we we turn away or maybe don't want God in our modern cultural moment today is because we think we know best, right? We want what we want. And if if God ever wants something different for us than what we want, well, that can't be what God wants for us. Of course, he wants what a 2023 Western American wants. Of course, like this is the culmination of human history. Whatever we want, God has to agree with us. And if he doesn't, well, then God must be wrong. We all want to be our own king. We all want to be in charge. This is what Psalms two is, Psalm 2 is referring to. And then in verse 4, if we keep reading, it says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So so what's happening here is God is laughing at those who think that they can subvert him or stop him, right? We do the same thing, right? If you have someone who, who, uh, who, who issues a threat or maybe some sort of proclamation that we know isn't going to, isn't true or won't be, won't happen. We're not threatened by it. In fact, we find it humorous. So uh, for example, uh, my five-year-old son, Roman is hyper competitive. Like everything is a competition. And so like, it's fun for me. We do a lot of things together. So if we're like walking in the neighborhood and he wants to, he says, dad, let's race to the next meal box or to the next, you know, uh, light in the neighborhood, or he's got this little basketball hoop in his, in his, in his room. And so we'll play basketball. Or he's got these little plastic hockey goals or we'll play hockey. Right. And he legitimately thinks that he is faster or better than me. Like there'll be times when he'll come home and tell Christina and say, I'm faster than dad. Did you know that I'm faster than dad? Now it, to me, it's funny because we all know he ain't faster than me. And when he starts to get cocky, that's when he starts to lose. But right? he starts, starts smacking me like, okay, son. And so like, but in his mind, like he has this like I don't know how, he has like this, this, he has it like in his mind, like he knows how many times I've won and how many times he has won. So he legitimately thinks that he is faster than me and he's better than me in basketball because apparently I've let him win more than I've won. But he, but he also thinks that I'm better than him at hockey because I've beaten him in hockey apparently more than he has beaten me. And so he says this, but to me it's funny, it's cute, but I know the reality is he actually cannot beat me. 
And so what the psalmist is saying here is that when God speaks, I mean, think Genesis, we've been talking about Genesis, it also means that he acts, that he shuts them down, that the Lord is not dismayed or afraid of any threats that come against him because he knows he is in charge, that he rules, and that, therefore his people also should not be afraid if they're trusting in him. And so in this psalm, God laughs at the rebels and declares his firm purpose to establish his throne through the line of David as he promised. No matter who comes against Israel or what may happen, God's promise is going to happen. And so it mentions Zion here. Zion is often referred to uh, in place of Jerusalem. This is where God would reign, where his uh, presence would be known. And whoever uh, comes against God's anointed cannot be overthrown. That his sovereignty is unchangeable. Or again, what it's saying here is that God's anointed cannot be overthrown. That what God decrees, what God says, who God puts in place at certain times, if he wants them to be there, they will be there. No matter what we think or what it looks like or what we want, God has no rivals, that he is in control. Now, hear me, uh, trusting and following the Lord, even though he is in control and is over all things, uh, does not mean things will always go as you like or as I like. But it does mean that in the end, he wins. Even in our questions and doubts and our sufferings, in the end, he is going to win. And I think a big reason why the Psalms can be so encouraging to us is that they are relatable. They are often written by people who are struggling, right? They're trying to trust God in their suffering when things look really bad um, and they don't have, they don't know how it's going to turn out. Like it's not the end of their story when many of these things are being written. It's like right in the middle. And they're like, God, where are you? God, I don't understand. God, would you help me trust you? God, I need your help. And so they are so relatable to us because they are written from a place of true faith, of people who are suffering but still trying to trust in the Lord. And so the same is true for us, that we can have hope even in the midst of tragedy when we trust that this is not the end, that God's promises do endure and that Jesus will one day return and recreate the heavens and the earth and his kingdom where justice and peace and love will reign forever, that even in the midst of our sufferings and things not going well, we can still trust that God's a plan, that his anointed one cannot, will not be overthrown. And so with that in mind, the psalmist continues by saying this in verse 7. I will, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, so this was uh, David talking about what God told him through Samuel. He, uh, he said, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like poverty. So, so what, what David is doing here is he is referencing a conversation that Samuel, when he anointed David, had with David. And in this passage, he's talking about how the king is remembering the decree that God is his father and that he is his son. Or some translations say that he is his begotten son, which is, of course, the words, the, the imagery that Jesus picks up on in the New Testament. And what he's saying here is that the king of Israel is a representative and an embodiment of the people. Now, one of the distinctive distinct between ancient Israel and all, pretty much all other ancient kingdoms is that the king of Israel was not viewed as divine or, or angelic or a god in any sense. So many of the other nations and kings and rulers were seen as God, an angel or divine or had divine-like qualities or when they die, they were going to be uh, promoted to be a divine being. In Israel, they did not see their kings as divine. However, what they did see them as, as chosen by God to rule and to reign. And again, they were the ones that were ultimately responsible for how Israel 
battle behaves. And what David is saying here is that his kings are chosen, the chosen children, and the the people of Israel are God's children, and he will not abandon them. Now again, this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, where Samuel shares a word of the Lord to David that God told Samuel, the prophet, to tell this to David. It says this, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, again, talking about David, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And so this sounds really great that someone from the line of David will have a forever kingdom. That's awesome, especially if you're an Israelite. The problem, however, is that after a couple hundred years of Israel having their own kings, many of them wicked and unfaithful, uh, they end up, end up splitting into two separate nations, and then the northern kingdom gets overrun first, and then kind of in the mid-500s BC, the second kingdom gets overrun, people are sent out into exile, and Israel never again has their own sovereign king. Right? And so none of the living kings, when Israel had its own kingdom or had its own king, ever lived to see this promise in its fruition because they all eventually died. And then eventually Israel was no more. And so after Israel was sent into captivity, this psalm began to be read looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the anointed one who would come from the lineage of David and would one day save Israel and set up a kingdom of peace and justice forever. That's the hope in the Old Testament of this Messiah who is to come, which is why you might begin to see a little bit of why the first, the early followers of Jesus were very confused, right? They assumed if he is the anointed one, that he's going to come and establish a new kingdom. And of course, the only way to do that is to bear up arms, is to gather an army. And at that point in history, to defeat the Roman empire and create their own. So they're very confused when he's talking about dying because how are you supposed to be a king if you are dead? Now, of course, the New Testament, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus, begins to show us that Jesus is the ultimate hope and fulfillment of this Messiah. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and at different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, he has always existed. Everything was created through Jesus. You see this in John 1. And he is literally God's embodiment on the world, the earth. If you want to know who God is, you need to know who Jesus is. Continues by saying this in verse 3. After making purifications for sins, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, So he became superior to all the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then verse five, it says this, for to which of the angels did he ever say, so did God the father ever say, you are my son. Today I have become your father. This is a reference to Psalm two. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so what the the New Testament book of Hebrews is doing, it is bringing these two passages together to argue that Jesus is the messianic heir of David, that he is literally not just a son of God, like a, a human representative, but he also is God himself. He is the one through which the promises of Psalm 2 are ultimately fulfilled and made true. That he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one. 
It's why Paul, who was a foundational leader in the early church in Acts chapter 13 in one of his missionary journeys, he says this, and we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Again, Jesus is the anointed one that invites us into his kingdom. Or in Romans 1, one more time, the apostle Paul writes this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, right? Jesus the anointed one, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So Jesus did come from the line of David. Um, and, and it was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. His resurrection proved that he is the anointed one. Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles or, or for among those who do not yet know God, including you who are also called by Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is God's son. Now, Jesus is not just a representative to God, of God's people on, on, on God's behalf. Jesus is not just a representative of the people on God's behalf, although he is. But he's also here talking about how Jesus himself is a divine being, is God. And in irony of all ironies, his coronation was actually his death and then his resurrection. So in contrast to building an army and overthrowing the Roman Empire, it was his death where everyone thought this is it. It was actually his coronation that just to prove that he was the anointed one or he was the Messiah. And in fact, you see this when you read the Gospels and you read the accounts of Jesus dying. You actually see this, that this was his coronation. Now, I don't think in the time the followers of Jesus, his disciples understood this. But of course, later as they're writing the Gospels, as they understand the first picture, they begin to paint for us or to show us that his coronation was actually his death. So, uh, for example, he is anointed in the house of Simon the leper a few days before he is crucified. So he's literally anointed. Uh, he's mocked by the soldiers who are torturing him, calling him Hail, King of the Jews. So they're mockingly calling Jesus a king. Uh, he's, Jesus has given a purple robe that to wear during his torture as a, as a joke. As a, you're the Messiah. You're the king. Can't you save yourself? So he's given a purple robe. Uh, he's given a, place, a, a crown of thorns is placed on his his head. And then when he's actually dying on the cross, not only did you have the Roman soldiers, but then you had many fellow Jews who are walking along the roads, uh, calling him the king of Israel mockingly while he is on the cross. And so you have this picture of his death. What we would say was his humiliation was actually his uh, coronation. And what, what we see happening in the New Testament is that Jesus is the Christ of Psalm 2. That Jesus is the Messiah, is the anointed one, is the Meshua of the Old Testament, of Psalm 2, that they were all pointing to him. That the primary messianic picture you have in the Old Testament of the Messiah who is going to come one day and redeem God's people is that he would be an heir from David 
who will lead his people in bringing light and hope to the nations so that those who live under his rule and follow this king will bring blessings and hope to all people. And the invitation is for all nations, all people, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, to be welcome into the kingdom of God's kingdom of blessing and peace. And that no one will, ever, will, will be able to stand against this king. That when Jesus returns a second time and recreates the heavens and the earth, then he judges the living and the dead, that he is in control that he is our hope, that he is the one that makes it possible for us to experience God's grace, that Jesus initiated his kingdom at his first coming and at his second coming, he will judge the living and the dead and he will establish his perfect kingdom forever that will be, that will be marked by love and peace, that he is the one, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of Psalm 2 that is going to make this happen. And because what God says is going to come to pass it is true, the psalmist ends by saying this in verse 10. He says, So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. In other words, if you try to fight against him, if you try to establish your own kingdom, you, think you, you will not win. Things will not end well for you, for his anger may ignite at any moment. What the psalmist is talking there is it's really easy for us to mistake God's patience with God's approval. So just because we're doing something, going our own way, we might assume, well, that means God must be okay with it, or that means everything is okay. But at any moment, we should not mistake his patience to assume that he is not going to bring judgment on those who think that they can stand against him. But then it ends this, this way. This is my favorite part of the psalm. Here's how it ends. It says, all who take refuge in him, in the Messiah, are happy. All who take refuge in him are happy. So in response, uh, the, David is saying this, be wise, O rulers, uh, be wise people who want to reject this king who God has anointed, for he is not just another human ruler, but is, the God, but is God the Father's own appointed king for the sake of the entire world. So we should serve him, we should follow him, we should pay homage to him or kiss the son, which means that we should revere, that we should respect him, that we should bow to him. If not, you will perish. You will not stand that the Messiah is the one who holds our salvation. The Messiah is the one who brings us into the kingdom. And so to oppose the Messiah, to oppose the anointed one is to oppose God himself, is to oppose the one God has chosen to redeem us. And when we do that, we lose. When we go our own way, when we think we are gods or we are kings or we can figure it out ourselves, we lose. And so again, the question for us this morning was this, who is in charge? And I know the answer is like Jesus, right? But like practically in your life, in your actions, how do you live? How you live demonstrates who's, who, who's in charge. Who would you say how you live shows? Because what the psalmist here is saying this, is saying this, that there is only one true king. There's only one true king. And here's the thing. It's not you, and it's not me, right? It's not your intellect. It's not your education. It's not your desires. It's not your trying really hard. It's not your income level. It's not the president. It's not your boss. It's not your heroes. It's not your kids. Uh, it's not the Illuminati. It's not the Russians. It's not the Chinese. It's not the Americans, right? All of these things will one day be gone. It will all end, but God's anointed stands forever, 
And hear me, this is a really good thing, that God exists and his anointed stands forever and will one day bring justice to the earth. Because here's the sad reality. Devoid of God, everything comes down to simply who has the most power. It doesn't matter what the rules are. It's simply who has the most power. And I was really struck by this about a little over a year ago. I read this book called Why Nations Rise and Fall. And it's a, it's a big book. It's really fascinating about all throughout human history, like the, the nations and the kingdoms of the world, like the seven stages of like, here's the signs that a nation's powerful. Here's the signs it begins to decline. Here's like who, 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 who runs the money, uh, uh, war, all these things. And there was like, it wasn't the point of the book. One thing that really struck with me was the author was saying like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the rules for the Geneva Convention are or who says what is a war crime, for example. All that matters is who's actually in charge. Right? Because you can have all these rules and regulations, but if you have the power, no one's actually going to stop you from doing what you want to do. And if you don't have the power, if you're a smaller nation or an unpowerful nation, you better play by the rules or you will be punished by the more powerful nations. In fact, we see this happening right now. So and, and with the war with Ukraine and Russia, right? you talk about, you hear all these war crimes and it's like, it doesn't matter that people are saying war crimes are happening if nobody's doing anything about it. Like, it doesn't matter. They're saying that there was a war crime means nothing. Or a few weeks ago, the um, International Criminal Court put an arrest warrant out for Vladimir Putin. And it's like, as great as that symbolic thing might be, no one's actually going to arrest him, right? He's not going to leave Russia. And even if he were, the only nations more powerful than, than Russia right now are the Chinese and the Americans. The Chinese are not going to arrest him because there's an alliance there. The Americans would not arrest him because it would start World War III. So, so nobody, there's this arrest warrant out and nobody's doing anything about it. And so what he's talking about in the book is that the desire without ability to make something happen means nothing. doesn't matter what your desire is. Whoever is in charge makes the rules. And what, now you might be thinking, what does this have to do with God? Well, uh, Kristen Burkett talking about this idea of naturalism. If there is no God, this is all that there is. Here's what this would mean when it comes to power dynamics. It says, she says this, it is not only humanity that fails to matter if there is nothing more than the natural world. Ironically, the natural world ceases to matter as well. It is just a collection of atoms. Some of us like our collection of atoms in the form of trees and meadows, Others prefer cars and fuel. Who is to say which is better? There is no value to be attached to the world other than what any individual cares to give it. And no individual matters more than another. It just comes down to who has the power to make their values win. That's all that matters. And so when we talk about Jesus being the only, or that there is only one true king, here's the good news. And here's why the psalm ends by saying, all who take refuge in him are happy. Because he is going to win, and he is a, the only king in all of human history who came to lay down his life for his people. That he is not vindictive, he is not manipulating, he is not on a power trip, that he came knowing we could give him nothing, that he does not already have, already own, already possess himself. He came to give his life and to serve. That Jesus came, our true anointed king, came to live the life that you and I could not live, died the death, took the wrath of God that we deserved, and then defeated death three days later to show that he has the power over sin and death to welcome anyone and everyone who would trust in him for their atonement. That he is our substitute, that he takes our our place, that he invites us into the kingdom of God, not because of our effort or how smart we are or how much money we make or what our gender is or where we went to school, but because of his sacrifice and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. He's the one who's done it, not us, which means all of us, all the peoples of the world can be happy in the king who loves them. 
That when you submit your life to Jesus, the true king, you actually get everything you long for, everything you actually need. Not everything you actually want, but everything you actually need. It's found in the right place in him, in his kingdom. And that one day when he returns and he invites any and everyone who would repent and trust in him instead of their efforts, they get invited into his kingdom, not because of us, because of him, where justice and love and peace will reign forever. And so the question again for us is who is in charge? Is it you or is it God? Right? And again, not what you think the right answer is, but what do your actions demonstrate? Are you willing to trust in the king who cannot be overthrown, who will win, who is the king, who loves you? Or do you and I want to fight and go our own way and try to earn and measure up when God has accomplished everything for us on his behalf? That's our choice. 